0: Remember the show Designing Women? Absolutely. Shack Taylor, bro. I watch that all the time. Yeah. They went in on the hearings, on Clarence Thomas, and I remember watching that show and just thinking, okay, this is the right way. I should not be swayed by, okay, black man getting lynched in public. This is a travesty. No. Stick with the allegations. <laughs> so you yours was a merge magazine and mine was designing one
1: <laughs> <You probably laughs> I mean, it home. was a it was a much more diverse uh, media environment in the mid 90s yeah. right <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> welcome back everyone it's stuck with damien young the show where we all know that there's no one more dangerous than a nigga ashamed to be a nigga so the latest season of slow burn the amazing podcast series from slate is a deep dive into Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and not just, like, who he is, but why he is. Basically, yo, what the fuck is wrong with this nigga? And joining us today is Joel Anderson, host of Slow Burn, as we talk about a man who, unfortunately, is one of the 10 most influential Black Americans of all time. And then, for Dear Damon, Shaniqua McClendon, Vice President of Politics for Crooked Media, helps me answer a question from a listener who is tired of talking about politics and wants to know how to opt out. All right, y'all. Let's get it. Joe Anderson is the staff writer at Slate and the host of Slate's amazing podcast series, Slow Burn. Joel. What's good, man?
1: Man, good to be here with you, bro. Thanks for having me on.
0: Oh, no doubt, no doubt. So, Joel, I'm I, I'm going to have to say that I'm really disappointed about something. You know, before we started taping, you know, we were talking about ages, and I just presumed that I'm older than you because I assume that I'm older than everyone who appears on this podcast, <laughs> at least people who who look. <laughs> my age. I feel like I'll always have <laughs> that
1: trump card. I know that had to hurt because I know, yeah, we take a little bit of like, I know you might think I, I'm younger or whatever than I am, but no, actually I'm pretty old. And I I, I use that on you. I didn't even actually even know this was close. So I just assumed you were much younger than me.
0: Well, well, I appreciate that. And I like to use it too. I, I particularly like to use it when I'm hooping oh, and I'm playing man. ball. And you know, I could still go a little bit and you know, and then young boys like, so how how old are you? Or did you used to hoop? And I'm like, yeah, a long time ago. You know? <laughs> but um, but anyway, you are older than me, but you yeah. look you very young. And, th- and I think I presumed that you were younger because you have a very youthful spirit.
1: Well, thank you. <laughs> right? Which could be good or bad. You ain't seen me like no NBA young boy tweaks or something like that, have you?
0: No, nah, I, I mean, <laughs> I don't consider you to be disturbingly young or have okay. like a disturbingly young spirit. You're just all right. I feel like when I was younger hmm. There was an idea of like what 40 or 50, particularly like a 40 or 50 year old dad, like Absolutely. this is how people looked and acted and moved when you're that age. And I think that a lot of people, you know, 30, 40 years ago did look and act and move a certain way. But I think maybe now people are having kids later. I don't know. I, I just think that what I thought 44 would look like and what 44 actually is are very distinct.
1: Oh, well, man, even amongst our cohort, uh, I have friends that are 45 and they have all those markers, right? Not only do they maybe look like it, and I'm not saying that derisively, right? Mm -hmm. But middle age has set in, but also they have the house they have a kid i so i played college football i have multiple teammates at this point who have kids that are in college or have already graduated college yeah right and so it may throw you off because yes i have a 15 month old which is <laughs> wildly out of step with my peer group i'm way behind all of them especially people from texas uh so i can i can understand why somebody may look at you know the the facts on the ground and be like 38 prematurely gray but 38 you know what i mean
0: and you mentioned, too, like the certain markers of age. And and I think that, you know, particularly people in this sort of careers that we're in, you know, where you're freelancing, you're hustling, you're in spaces with people who are much younger than you. And again, I think some of the markers of age or some of the markers of age that we have always associated with age, that comes with having like a more traditional, more settled sort of nine to five where you start working at, you know, a place when you're 23. And you've been there for 20 years already. Right by the time you reach your bit 40. So you have the house, the 401k, you know, you have the grown kids at this <laughs> point. And, and so without any of that sort of stuff, you know, I think that 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 contributes to, I guess, the aesthetic of youthfulness, perhaps. Yeah,
1: well, you know, also, the, the, to the extent that I have any prominence in journalism, um, the way that people heard of me was when I was at BuzzFeed, Mm-hmm. you know what i mean and like that is a young ass company yeah. you know what i'm saying they were, and even in the newsroom i was like i'm old you know so like some y'all allowed i don't understand who the people that are famous you know what I'm you know they bring somebody in and i'm like they say he's famous i just have to accept that you know <laughs> <laughs> so so the buzzfeed thing may have also thrown people off too because you know it's a youthful company but you know on the
0: other hand i was one of the oldest people in the newsroom so mm-hmm. so speaking of age and speaking of father speaking of fatherhood Okay, mm. just a mm-hmm. quick story about my dad. So 2007, mm-hmm. there was a big 60 Minutes Profile of Clarence Thomas, mm. right? Now at this point, obviously I had heard of Clarence Thomas, and knew who he was, my association with him, was not good, very negative. There probably wasn't another black person in America that I had more negative feelings towards. And this was in 2007, not even now. Right, um, and so I watched the 60 Minutes profile because you know I wanted to understand him a bit more, you know, I wanted to know what made this guy tick. And so I watched it and I came away from it, not necessarily agreeing with anything about him, but giving him more grace, like mm-hmm. understanding, like, you know what, I don't agree with what you're saying, I don't agree with how he feels about this, but I get it. I get where he's coming from with that, okay. Mm-hmm. So, I watch this segment. I think I'm over at my parents' house. Mm-hmm. My dad walks by. I tell him, like, hey, I was just watching this thing on Clarence Thomas. He, You know, I, I I go through my whole spiel, whatever. <laughs> and my dad looks at me. He's like, son, there is nothing on earth more dangerous than a nigga ashamed to be a nigga. Ooh. Then he walks away. Wow. He just dropped that on you, huh? You he just, knew he knew <laughs> I was bars. <buzzed. laughs> I'm just like, okay, you got it, Dad. Wow, that's so, something. Yeah. So, what was your, I guess, your your first um, interaction? And when I mean interaction, I mean that in person, but just like in terms of like a cultural, like I see interaction with. Clarence Thomas. When did that happen for you?
1: Well, it definitely was the confirmation hearing itself. Yeah. Um, I would have been thirteen. That's sort of the awakening of your political self when you mm-hmm. start thinking about this president is Democrat, this president is Republican. Um, I have some political values that may align with these sort of people, right? And the thing about the confirmation hearing is not that I was interested in the political theater of it. That you know, if they named this person to replace Thurgood Marshall, it would change the balance of the supreme court and any of that stuff it was more there's this black guy named clarence that they've uh that they want to replace Thurgood, and there's some debate over whether or not he should be there you know mm-hmm. and it wasn't you know whatever but um like hearing high-tech lynching on tv like i, I wish people could kind of go back 30 some odd years and hear him say that in real time mm. because just like your daddy's bars like that felt like man like, he stepped away from the cypher, and it was like, well, he won.
0: Yeah, he just, won. Dropped, just dropped the mic. <laughs> he won. Sexy um, chocolate INS on Triumph. Ch- Sexy uh, chocolate. Just, just dropped, just dropped yeah. the
1: mic. Yeah, and he saw that. <laughs> so, yeah, and then the long dong silver of it. Like, it just seemed really silly and everything else. The, the You know, for people that are not familiar, that, that was allegedly some of the porn that he talked about discuss with Anita Hill and some of the other people he worked with, mm-hmm. um, that were you know junior to him uh, at the EEOC. So it was just mostly you know wild political theater. I didn't think about the impact he might have on the world, the impact that he had already had on the world. But he came to me as a guy that people were sort of conflicted about, confused about, mm-hmm. um, and obviously over the next few years, uh, as I get older and more, my political self is, becomes more defined. I'm more familiar with the world, and then. Emerge magazine for black folks that remember this back in the nineties, they did a couple of covers of him. There were caricatures, Mm -hmm. one of him looking like Aunt Jemima. The other of him as a literal lawn jockey. Right. Um, and by that time I'm like, okay, like, this is a guy kind of like your pops. You've identified him as he's an enemy of our people. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's more complicated than that, but bottom line, that's how
0: he sort of came to me early on. So there was, there was an ambivalence, Though so early on when you first like heard of Clarence Thomas and you know, he first became like a you know a the person that we talked about, you did feel some ambivalence. Yeah. Okay. Clarence Thomas. I mean, just Clarence Thomas.
1: Yeah. <laughs> These white people are mad
0: about Clarence Thomas. Who am I supposed to side with? Clarence Thomas. You know what I will say. That I've been on the wrong side of history with quite a few things. <laughs> right, is Kyrie one of these things? I'm is... not, no, I'm, well, I'm not giving up. I'm not you giving not up go, on Kyrie. Okay, right, I'm can... still, on, I'm still on Kyrie Allen. So, okay, all you know right. I mean, That's... I'm, I'm, I'm not living there. I'm leasing, <laughs> leasing the property.
1: You check in from time to time. Make yeah, sure yeah just good, See how things problem. are doing. If, if
0: you know, the property needs any updates, but I'm not, I'm not living there anymore. But I still okay. own the property. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I remember not being swayed. With Clarence Thomas's, you know, claims of a high tech lynching and, you know, racism and et cetera, et cetera. And I think the thing that kind of solidified my political consciousness, or at least my consciousness in that regard. Remember the show Designing Women? Absolutely. Meshack Taylor, bro. Yes. I watch that all the time. Yeah. And they went in on the hearings on Clarence Thomas. And I remember watching that show and just thinking, okay, this is this is the right way. I should not be swayed by, okay, black man getting, you know, lynched in public. This is, you know, a travesty. This is whatever. No. Just stick with the Anita Hill. Stick with the allegations. And again, that so you, yours was a merge magazine and mine was a zoning woman. Right? Um,
1: it was a it was a much more diverse uh, media environment in the mid '90s, yeah. right? So you could come across <laughs> things a lot of different ways. That just happened to be how you came across it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, man. You know, I wish that my political sense had involved more like gender analysis. Um, at the time, but I'm coming off. I think '91 may have been the year that Mike Tyson got accused of rape for the first time, too. Um, you know, by Desiree Washington, and even then, I was sort of man, where's she coming up with all this stuff from? They trying to bring a brother down, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I was still sort of in that mode. Like um, around 13 years old, I'm reading Black Boy. I'm reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. I'm like really invested in like great Black men and like the ways in which people try to bring them down. And so I thought it was persuasive that, man, this Black guy come here. And all of a sudden this woman saying, "Uh uh-oh, you know, he did something to her. Like maybe she's a tool of like all these white people. My skepticism was more about white people than anything else at that age is mm-hmm. um, I'm sort of coming into myself. So, yeah, I wasn't smart enough to listen to what Delta Burke and uh, Julie Sugar- <laughs> <Yeah, Julia> Sugarbaker <laughs> and all the folks were saying, you know, like I probably I did watch that show and I probably even watched that episode, but um, it had not turned all the way over for me at the point where, where I would ask myself, why would Anita Hill do this? It doesn't even
0: make any sense. Well, I mean, and to your point, you know, I'm glad you brought up Mike Tyson because again, Tyson was someone that I was without, that I was wrong on. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like I was there with you with Tyson. Yeah. But for whatever reason, the Clarence Thomas thing, I, I think I. The only time I like again felt any sort of even the inkling of ambivalence was after watching that 60 Minutes, um, special in in 2007. That that was like the only time. But for whatever reason, I just from day one was like, oh yeah, this nigga ain't shit. <laughs> <laughs> we, from like we, day one.
1: You were so much smarter. You were smarter than even Joe Biden on that point.
0: I'm not even gonna give myself that because there were other places, right? right. You know, um, Tupac, you know, perhaps there's another one. Mm. You know what I mean? Mike Tyson, you know, where I'm siding with my hero, yeah, with the person who, you know, I, I, I rooted for, the person whose music I listen to, you know, and perhaps that was it. Perhaps because I had no context for Clarence Thomas, other than the allegations, right, mm-hmm. that made it easier for me to be like, oh yeah, fuck this nigga.
1: Yeah, he ain't dropped no album. He had not scored. you yeah. he ain't averaged twenty points in the season and nothing like mm-hmm. that. So yeah, that's the only way you kind of came across him. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm uh, unlike you. I was probably wrong on every man in that regard <laughs> until I was in my mid to late twenties. Okay. Like Kobe, Kobe was one of the first times that I sort of stood around and I was like. I kind of don't understand like why this woman would subject herself to this. Like if if it's not true, why would she like it didn't seem like the, it, the there was the money piece of it, right? But it just didn't what she got in return. She would never be able to be a public figure as far as I know. We don't have to get into the Kobe of it, but you know what I'm saying, it was the first time that I was like maybe sometimes black men are guilty of sexual assault, sexual harassment, sexual abuse. It's not just, you know, some tool of white supremacy. Um, you know, wielded against black men who are ascendant in some sort of way. Um, so the, my reasons for disliking Clarence Thomas were not about that. It was about, I thought he was a traitor to our people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in, in the 30 years, you know, since he's been in justice, um, 30, 30 some years, um, like there's nothing that he's done that has, you know, I guess, made anyone's ambivalence mm-hmm. from, from back then justified. Yeah. Right. Or any progressive person, any progressive kid, any any conscientious person's ambivalence, if they possess any ambivalence. There's nothing that he's done that would make you like, uh, you know what? Maybe. Uh, you know what? <laughs> and so I guess I, w- I wanted to ask you why you chose to focus in on Clarence Thomas for this season of Slow Burn. Like what what was the genesis of that idea? Like what made him so fascinating? I mean, he obviously is a fascinating, extremely fascinating character, but. Why choose him for this sort of deep dive? And, you know, just for context, Joel is the host of the Slate podcast, Slow Burn. This is the eighth season mm-hmm. of Slow Burn. And um, last season you focused on. I
1: did the L.A. riots. I did the LA, L.A. riots season. And then the season right after that one was on Roe v.
0: Wade. And so okay. this is. Yeah. So anyway, we're
1: we're back in the Supreme Court business again.
0: Yeah. And the thing is, it, it's definitely relevant to have a deep dive on Clarence Thomas, but that decision was made before the Roe v. Wade decision was overturned. So again, what was the genesis behind you choosing to do a deep dive on Clarence Thomas?
1: Well, yeah, so I've been aware of him for most of my politically aware life. And as I mentioned in the podcast, in the final segment, uh, where we talk about sort of this community conversation the Black folks are having about Clarence Thomas and whether or not Hey, maybe we should support him. He's a black man. He's bound to come to the right side of things, or mm-hmm. no, he's irredeemable. Um, so anyway, my favorite writer at the time, Ralph Wiley, wrote this essay called "Mr. Justice Thomas," and it covers a lot of this stuff. And mm. and Ralph Wiley comes to the you know at some point in the essay is like, I've just basically got to hope that the experience of going through this will redefine him and his political beliefs, and maybe he'll come around. So that's lingering in my mind. Like Clarence Thomas is one of the most important, most prominent black people of my lifetime. Uh, And then like, you know, the Thurgood Marshall of it, the long Dong silver of it, the high tech lynching of it, the pubic hair on my can of Coke of it. It was just one of the more memorable, formative news events of my young life. And it drove a lot of conversation. There's another thing, you know, people talk a lot about Clarence Thomas as this complicated figure, like, you know, he's this enigma or whatever. And I always was sort of dubious of that. I was like, mm-hmm. is he really that complicated? And I think as a black person, like if you're black, you grew up around black people, you, uh, you're whatever, I hate to use the term steeped in blackness, but whatever. Like you grew up around black folks and steeped in blackness. We all know a lot of people like Clarence Thomas, mm-hmm. like people that don't like black people or think that black people are, to blame for their lot in this world. Um, and I just think that like that was a part that I was interested in and in discussing publicly. Like, actually the reason you think this guy is so fascinating or, or interesting or confusing is because you actually don't know very many black people. But if you had said in any barbershop, uh any community group, fraternity, whatever else, you would know that they're there. I mean, it's not even all that Uncommon. It's not like it's unprecedented for like a former Black Panther to become a conservative Republican. You know why Eldridge Cleaver did it. Mm -hmm. Muhammad Ali endorsed Ronald Reagan. Like Jim Brown was a supporter of Donald Trump. People get confused about Black folks when they show up for for Republicans or conservative causes. It's like you're missing a lot of what they were saying all along. And so that's kind of the part of it that I thought would be interesting to dig into and to discuss publicly through this podcast.
0: And you make a point too about how the misogyny is like that's that's the key. Right, mm-hmm. that's the canary in the coal mine. That's like the indicator. That's the one thing. Like there was a tweet or meme a couple of days ago about this serial killer um, who was mm-hmm. recently discovered in New Jersey. I forgot his name, white man. And you know, someone you know joked, and you know, I'm putting that in the, the strongest scare quotes possible. That you know, this guy seemed normal except for his hatred of women. <laughs> right, which we didn't care about <laughs> anyway. That's real. real, right? And that's you know, I guess has been kind of just a. A consistent rule line with people who make, you know, quote unquote, turns into a certain type of politics. It's like, well, like Ice Cube is another one oh. where, you know, people have been surprised by Ice Cube's descent into, I guess, Hottepian adjacent. Damn it.
1: <laughs> Ice Cube was one of my favorite rappers. Top three when I was a kid. That music, a lot of it doesn't hold up, bro.
0: It doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. And again, one thing that has been consistent in his music and I guess in his politics now is just a uh, this overall dismissal of women, mm-hmm. right? You know, mm-hmm. hatred, misogyny, whatever you want to call it. And so, when you pay attention to that, that it makes certain political stances and certain political shifts less jarring because it's like you, they're just they're they're drawing the same continuum. They're on the same line. They're just doing the same thing, right? Absolutely. You brought up Clarence Thomas being, you know, one of the most influential uh, black people of your lifetime. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, he actually might be one of the 10 most influential black Americans ever. Yeah. Really. When you consider. And, and that, that, not you know, influence doesn't always have to be a good influence. Absolutely. Right. Because um, that, that list, I mean, whatever short list there is of most influential people who have you know, enacted the most change for good or bad reasons. He is on it.
1: Yeah. I mean, he's moved law in this country, right? Like he's moved voting rights law, gun rights law, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the way that sexual harassment is adjudicated through the EEOC, things like that, protected classes, you know, affirmative action most recently. Right. Um, And I mean, I guess like, yeah, I mean, you you, you know, you got to have third good Marshall on that list You got to have Barack Obama on that list. Mm -hmm. But in terms of lasting political and cultural change in this country, yeah, man, it's tough to get more than Clarence Thomas, who, if he serves five more years, will be the longest serving Supreme Court justice in American history. Like, Mm -hmm. the thing is, is if if Clarence Thomas was Thurgood Marshall, or if he had like the political ideology of him, it would be obvious, right? Like, he would be on a Mount Rushmore. We would have him. You know, my mom wouldn't just have a stuffed version of Bo Obama in her house. She would have whatever dog, you know, Clarence and Jenny had, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, he, he would be on that, uh, you know, it'd be him, Martin, you know, Malcolm, I don't know mm-hmm. who the four, you know, whatever. He would be on that, but yeah, he's forfeited that. But it, it doesn't mean that it's diminished his power or his influence. It just means that it's coming from somewhere else. So, yeah, man, I mean, like I said, Barack Thurgood, who else we got? Michael Jordan, I don't know. I mean, Michael Jackson. Michael Jordan,
0: Michael Jackson. Again, you said Malcolm, Marcus Garvey, Oprah. Right.
1: I mean, he sort of supersedes a lot of these people, man, mm-hmm. in terms of actual real impact um, on people's yeah. lives. Harriet Tubman. Yeah, we got, got Harriet Tubman. She would a- have to make them out Rushmore, more, but. Frederick Douglass.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, whatever lists, whichever names. We, we name Clarence Thomas has to be one of the names.
1: It's not absurd to put him on there. It's not absurd to put him on there. And that's just enough as it is, yeah.
0: You brought up a good point too, about like how, you know, there was this presumption that people like Clarence Thomas, you know, niggas who hate niggas are rare, right? When, again, if you grow up around Black people, you know Black people like Clarence Thomas, mm-hmm. right? And and I think the presumption is also too that that sort of black person is a black person who grew up in the suburbs, didn't grow up around black people, grew up you know a certain class or whatever, and just you know grew up you know I guess entrenched in whiteness. It's like nah, like nine times out of ten, that person is a person who grew up around black people, black family, black neighborhoods, black schools, and just for whatever reason decided you know what fuck fuck y'all niggas. all right just got to a certain age I was like man fuck y'all oh, right right <laughs> fuck all this shit i don't want to oh, be yeah. one of y'all
1: man man y'all niggas man. niggas and flies niggas you know ain't shit
0: yes um yes. and so for the people that i know who are like this like if someone were to ask me like what the fuck is wrong with this guy what the fuck is wrong let's just say the guy's name is jim what the fuck is wrong with jim what the fuck is wrong with james like oh i could tell you i could i could pinpoint back in like eighth grade and ninth grade, and a thing that happened when we were growing up and et cetera, et cetera. And so I guess my question to you as someone who has, you know, done this deep dive into Clarence Thomas is what the fuck is wrong with Clarence Thomas? Like what happened to him? <laughs> well, I mean, I think he
1: comes by his ideology, honestly. And I know there's some people, I just saw this discussion yesterday that they think Clarence Thomas is full of shit, that all of it is a lie, that this is a ruse that he's playing. Mm-hmm. It would be, such a long game you know for for somebody to do this um the elements of it are always there and you can start with his grandfather who was you know a member of the naacp in the jim crow south right that don't mean you love black people it just means that you believe that you need to have access that we all deserve the same access and that white people should get out of our way right yeah and so his grandfather raised him pretty hard sent him to Catholic schools, wanted him to become a priest, but he never hugged him, never said that he loved him. He treated him really harshly. Um, And I think that that is a piece in Clarence Thomas and that he's kind of carried with him as he's gone older that cruelty is a form of love. Um, A deprivation Mm -hmm. of um, affection is a form of love. Um, And I think that he thinks that way about black people. He's like, if I take all this away from y'all, y'all be fine, you have no idea. We don't need the Civil Rights Act. We don't need the Voting Rights Act to improve ourselves and our communities. We can do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. I believe that he truly believes that.
0: So you don't think that this is a performance for whiteness? Or you think that that is indestructible from his political ideology?
1: I think there's a piece of it that is performance. That Without getting too deep into it and doing the psychology of it, I think that he's skeptical of white people too. Like I think that he doesn't trust or believe in the goodness of white people and that where his skepticism comes with like white liberals mm-hmm. um and he's like with well, the white conservatives they real they racist with me i know where we at we on a, we deal with each other on the same level i can get with that um i think he doesn't like the duplicity of like what he believes white liberals but i think he's sincere
0: in this i do yeah i could i i think of someone like a jason Whitlock, Ooh. who's also on the uncle Coon spectrum or whatever <laughs> the <Uncle Coon> and <laughs> And he, he is someone who doesn't really seem to have uh, ideology. It's like, you know what? I know that saying this about Serena Williams or saying this about Black-on-Black crime or saying this about fatherlessness or or whatever is going to generate page views, is going to generate retweets, is going to allow me to continue to get paid mm-hmm. for whoever wants to employ me now. You know what I mean? Right. You don't think he believes this sincerely? I think with him, I do believe that his beliefs have less integrity if I want to compare the two, okay, you know what I mean? In terms of Whitlock is someone who would lean towards whoever is like the highest bidder. Hmm. And the thing is, right now, there's more of a lane and there's more of an opportunity for grift for a black person who has a platform on the right. Because on on the left, there's just there's just so many. And, And again, I don't it's not that I don't think that he believes this stuff. But I think that that part of it, the performance part of it, is also uh, a huge factor. I think the performance also helped, helps generate, helps create you know, an ideology.
1: To, to the, the Whitlock piece of it, I think that actually that's, because if Whitlock had just gone along to get along, he'd be fine. He could be in charge of the Undefeated today or the Anscape. Mm-hmm. He could have made a lot of money, uh, but he's squandered a lot of opportunities um, and maybe he's still making more money than me. He's obviously more prominent than me. You know, when the story of journalism and this generation is told, his name's going to be mentioned, not mine. But
0: um, uh, I wouldn't say that.
1: I, I mean, wouldn't say that.
0: I, I mean, he, yeah, I mean, I think sometimes we do mistake size of platform for influence. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And the work that you're doing now, the work that you've been doing now is much more meaningful. Than anything that he's done in like the last what twenty years. That's kind of you to say. It really. I is. I mean, it's not. I'm not even being. I mean, you're no. you're on my show, right? <laughs> you know <what> I mean, <laughs> I'm, yes, I'm. I, I don't want to be a dick to a guest, but even if you were not on the show and I was just talking to anyone, and we were comparing not in terms of platform, but in terms of lasting power and relevance, I think you're selling yourself a little short, well, I- right there.
1: I appreciate you saying that, and I, I you know, maybe there's something to that, but I, you know, at least as it is now, Jason Whitlock has sort of created this lane for himself, and I think that it could have, if he had just played the game a little better than he did, he'd have a much bigger platform, he'd be revered, but like he could say be saying a lot of the same things, but say them in a way that isn't so loaded, um, like intentionally um, going after like people like Mina Kimes and Serena Williams, if he had like been smarter um, about it and he could have figured it out and that's the thing about Clarence Thomas is that Clarence Thomas was smart enough to not be that incendiary right that like he's just doing his work behind the scenes you know mm-hmm. um and that's what makes me think that this is th- there is a performance piece of it and that he's like pretending to go along with all these white Republicans that likely hate him and think he's an affirmative action case but he knows that to have power to wield it uh to see the kind of America that I want to happen I have to do this um and pretend that to like these, some of these people, but um, I think he's also sincere in his hatred.
0: He would not say it if
1: his hatred is black people, he would call it tough love.
0: You know, obviously this is an impossible question to answer, right? But mm-hmm. what does Clarence Thomas's ideal America look like? Um, Like some version of the Jim Crow South,
1: but without white people uh, trying to undercut black people at every turn. So like this great male society where black people have their own institutions, you know, their own universities, They run their own government. Um, They have their own businesses. You know, there's black capitalism with very little interference from white people and with black women and a subservient role working as aides and, you know, everything else. Not having a role in the leadership of this community, but for setting the culture and like the house life. But yeah, I think that would probably be his his ideal America. I mean, this is, again, his experiences around white people were not great. And he talks about it. It ain't like he Mm. enjoyed it. You know what i mean um and i mean he's married to jenny now but i can't find any evidence that he ever dated any other white women prior to that you know all his girlfriends were black and his wife was black before that so um i think that he wants to be among black people but he wants them to take it more seriously
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah um you don't believe that well no 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 i um i guess what i was thinking of too um while you were while you were saying that was i was just thinking going back to just the idea of how the misogyny is a consistent thing mm-hmm. right now he's dated black women and was married to a black woman but he hasn't had like the greatest relationships with black women right and that's a consistent thing you know the anita hill thing is obviously the most prominent example but you know he just hasn't had that before and so he's someone who i do wonder if his base you know inherent like ideology or way of th- way of seeing the world maybe contributed to his feelings about black women or if those feelings about black women actually just were extrapolated and became like a larger worldview where it became like an entire political ideology based off of this very particular type of misogyny
1: man wow that's a good ass question uh let's see so i definitely think he believes in like sort of the great man uh, theory of society that like society is moved by these great men who overcome tremendous hardship and they uh provide a leadership role in a direction for communities and he sees his grandfather sort of in that tradition right um that you know his fa- grandfather didn't go to school beyond third grade was illiterate but nevertheless carved out a career and a life for himself that was well mm-hmm. above middle class and was able to take care of people and his grandmother worked in a sort of a you know a complementary role here she doesn't get mm-hmm. nearly the same attention or re- reverence um so I think he believes in that but i also do think that his experiences with black women have informed it um he doesn't have a lot of regard for his mother and some people theorize it's because she had to give him up when he was six years old she couldn't manage to take care of him and three other children and had mm-hmm. to give him to his grandfather right um mm-hmm. and so he doesn't look at that and he looks at his sister his sister who has been you know been off and on welfare lived you know roughly in the same place that they've been for the last 40 years you know, she has a good, calm, peaceful life, but she didn't become like some prominent figure like he did. And he doesn't mm-hmm. have a lot of respect for her. Um, so I think like these early experiences where he's like, oh, women are not to be respected. They're here to like serve us in a lot of ways. they to take care of the family, take care of the home. And men like my grandfather are out there doing it. And if you look at his career at like the EEOC, he talks about, you know, the women he worked with. A lot of the black women were like his personal or special assistance They like did stuff for him. Um, It's not like he ever elevated anybody above his station. So um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's both. Like it was formed at a very young age, this belief that women are not quite equal to men. And then like every experience afterwards sort of reaffirmed that. And I mean, you know, you can kind of look at it like he just left his wife, man, and moved on to Jenny Thomas when shit was about to pop. Like his wife was there with him when he was broke. Doubted himself, didn't look like anything was going to take off, and then as soon as his career takes off, he hooks up with the white lady uh, that, uh, <laughs> 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 that that was that could be side by side with him at these Republican uh, cocktail parties. I mean, when he get on, leave he has for a white, a white girl. White girl, that's right. You know I, mean? I mean, Jenny Thomas, man, believe Jenny it. Jenny Thomas, right? uh, who who
0: would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joe Anderson, thank you so much. Thank you so oh. much for coming through again. Please check out. This podcast slow burn on slate you're also i mean you're all over slate you know you're also on hang up and listen hang up
1: and listen podcast, um yeah.
0: any other podcasts that i'm forgetting about
1: well you know my wife is dear prudence and i do do uh bonus segments with her every week uh for her mm-hmm. advice column so yeah good. i show
0: up every night again in some places so yeah okay all right well joel again thanks for coming back and um all right man good seeing you man likewise damon appreciate you having me on bro Up next, for Dear Damon, I'm joined by Shaniqua McClendon, who is the Vice President of Politics for Crooked Media. But first, Damon hates. I recently spent a week in Miami. I was there teaching at the University of Miami, I was there for Bona, which is a yearly retreat workshop for writers of color. And I was one of the instructors for Bona. I had a great time. It was a great group, very generous, very curious, very unpretentious. No notes, 10 out of 10 experience. And one of the things about being in Miami that I noticed when I got back home to Pittsburgh is that I had an actual physiological change to the climate down there where the anxiety that fucks with me when I'm home, the back issues, the neck issues, the hip issues, all of that just disappeared when I was in Miami. Now, obviously, whenever people go on vacation or do a vacation-like activity, this wasn't vacation, but vacation-like, you don't have the same anxieties and neuroses or whatever that you do at home. So of course, you're gonna feel less anxiety, less trepidation, less whatever less stress so that has to be taken into account (laughs) i also just think that i'm not built for this pittsburgh climate that the climate in the more tropical spaces just agrees with my body more i'm not supposed to be here (laughs) and by here i mean pittsburgh and now that doesn't mean i'm going to move to miami because one thing i will say about that city is i experienced more overt racism in that week there than i experienced in like 10 years of pittsburgh where you were walking in spaces and these were white latino cuban maybe spaces and i would fit it it felt like a nigga walking into like some diner (laughs) in 1960s mississippi where every eye like one of the movies like mississippi burner where you walk into a diner and every eye is on you like you just felt the energy in the room and i don't really feel it that way in pittsburgh but anyway this weather This experience, this climate that is here just ain't for me. And again, I am a Pittsburgher, born and raised, born and bred. My family's here. My wife is from here also. So I have these ties here. We bought a house five years ago. But it might be time for me to seriously thinking about getting the fuck out of the city because it might be killing me. Shaniqua McClendon is the Vice President of Politics for Crooked Media. Shaniqua, what's good?
3: Uh, Not much. Sorry. (laughs) I don't know why what's good was such a foreign, uh, how are you to me? I know what it means. I'm good. How are
0: you? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I appreciate the honesty. (laughs) I appreciate it.
3: What's good? Some things are good. Some things are not. Okay. You know.
0: I started saying what's good after college. I went to college in New York State, Canisius College. What's good was the greeting. And it just was one of those things that I t- it probably was the main thing I took from college. Yeah. Was saying what's good.
3: See, I was born in New York.
0: And you don't say what's good?
3: No, I left when I was nine. But now that I think about it, my father still lives up there. And whenever I'm with him and his friends, he'll just be like, what's good? Or his other one, whenever we go out to eat and he's trying to get the waiter's attention, <laughs> he'll be like, hey, oh, my man. <laughs> just like, can you just say hey? <laughs>
0: That's something that I think I'll never get used to is how people from New York City, how aggressive Mm -hmm. they are. And it's not like rude. No. But just there's an aggressiveness to servers. And it's like these are the people that are handling the food.
3: I know. Even when he's trying to give them a tip. My father won't tip on his card. He only tips in cash. Okay. Because he has these theories and he'll even be, "Hey, yo, my man, I just want to make sure you get this. And so he can (laughs) hand him the cash directly. So I don't know. I guess it works for him.
0: I think the last time we saw each other, the only time really was at the Congressional Black Caucus Week last year in D.C. Yeah. Good to see you again. You too. So, Morgan, the producer, what we got cooking for Shaniqua this week?
2: Dear Damon, as a Black person, how do I get out of talking about politics without seeming weird or uptight? It feels like a prerequisite to have to talk about it, but I am tired After a long traumatic period of political upheaval, I'm fucking tired of talking about politics. I also should mention that I'm a Black woman living in Florida, so I am extra tired. I'm tired of explaining and educating. I get riled up inside, frustrated and upset internally. For my mental health, I don't want to talk about politics anymore with anyone, but particularly with the handful of Republicans and independents that I know. For clarity, they don't bring up politics much either, but I do feel like I'm walking on eggshells to some extent, especially as we head into the 2024 election season. As a Black person, how do I get around
3: talking about politics without seeming weird or uptight? Sneakwa. Yeah.
0: Who's the other question? What you got for us?
3: There's a few different things. I feel like I encounter this. I mean, in my career, generally, once people here I work in politics, but especially like an Uber and Lyft rides, <laughs> you know, the drivers are like, hey, where are you headed? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, what do you do? Especially when I go to L.A. and I'm like, oh, I'm here for work. Then it turns into all these questions. And I was in an Uber here in D.C. during Pride. I don't know where I was going, but the Uber driver was like, oh prize this weekend. It's going to be a bunch of men walking around in halter tops. And I just got quiet. I think he expected me to say something. And then he said something else that was weird. And I just looked at him and then he was like, but, you know, it's fine. It's fine. And I was like, yeah, it is fine. So this doesn't get you fully out of talking about politics, but I just like to make people feel really uncomfortable about the sideways stuff they say, the sideways stuff they believe. Or, you know, if someone was to come up to me and say, you know, I don't think it's so bad that people support Trump. You know, like I don't. But I'll go through a list and then they don't want to talk about it anymore. Now, if you want to get out of it all together, sometimes I just lie about what I do. I'll say I work in media and keep it vague. And if they press more, I'll just be vague. I mean, I guess you don't want to lie, but like you don't owe anyone a political conversation because especially as a black woman, there's so many layers that come with that. And, you know, politics affects everyone, but it's just for black women and black people or anyone who's not like a white, cis, straight man, Politics has a lot greater impact because we're in fewer powers of position or fewer positions of power. So, like, you don't owe anyone that emotional labor. You just literally don't. And maybe you should not be so concerned with sounding uptight. I don't think it's uptight to say, I don't want to talk about this.
0: I just wanted to say that I really like, I know that it was kind of malapropism, but powers of position is a really good phrase.
3: (laughs) Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm going to use that for something.
3: Okay. You heard it here first.
0: (laughs) So, The part of the question that really stood out to me was this person who expressed a anxiety in talking about politics around like the conservatives and independents that they know. Now, they didn't really distinguish whether these were like a social sort of, you know, connection or like a work sort of thing where you you just happen to be in those spaces and it's unavoidable. Yeah. But I got the feeling that it was a social connection. And so I'm curious also how someone who claims to be progressive in 2023 is still in social spaces with so many conservative and independent which is conservative yeah and i guess my takeaway is like well if you put yourselves in that sort of environment socially Mm -hmm. voluntarily then you are making a choice yeah if you're able to remove yourself from those environments, if this is a social thing, if this is a choice thing, if this is a thing where you don't have to work with these people, you don't like live next to these people, whatever. Yeah. It's a choice.
3: Yeah. No, I completely agree. And even if it is a work situation, so one, if this person works in politics, I imagine they wouldn't be around that many independents and conservatives in their workspace. So I think it's perfectly fine to tell your coworkers that you don't want to talk about politics at work. Like that's just like kind of a boundary that you have. But it does sound like this is a social setting. And. You know, Florida is Florida, but it's not only conservatives. I mean, you look at some of the policies, some of the ballot initiatives that have been passed to restore voting rights for formerly incarcerated people to raise the minimum wage. Like there are like minded people in Florida that I'm sure this person can find. And you don't have to subject yourself to this, And I say that as someone who works in progressive politics and has to deal with the other piece of this, which is like a lot of white liberals who feel, you know, they have a lot of thoughts that can sometimes be paternalistic just about the ways that we can help black and brown people. And I mean, for me, I like getting in arguments about politics because I think I'm right most of the time. And even if they don't agree with me, like I got my facts, but still That can even be degrading with people who agree with me, but have different kind of underlying ideologies about why they believe the things that they believe. And you just, I don't know, like this this sounds crazy, but like sometimes you can just pull the race or marginalized identity card and be like, look, I know more than you because I've lived this experience. And so you can kind of think what you want to think, but here we are. Or you can say, look, I just don't feel comfortable talking to you about that. But I, I agree. It's a choice. Now, do you feel
0: that people who are progressive, you know, who find themselves either socially or economically or just physically, geographically in spaces that are less progressive, do you think that those people have an obligation to like speak up? You mentioned an Uber driver or something that's a bit more severe. Do progressive people in those sorts of spaces have an obligation to, I guess, to correct or to push back?
3: I honestly think it depends on like, if you feel safe, like how marginalized is your identity? So my driver was like an older black man saying this stuff. And I as a woman, you know, don't always feel safe, like pushing back on a man because and I've been in Ubers where things have gotten uncomfortable because someone's trying to flirt with me or get my number and you know, there's a power dynamic there. I'm in the backseat of someone's car. And so I think you have to think about like how safe it is to push back on those things. But when I feel safe to do that, I always do do it because I know that like where I am in my life, I have a tremendous amount of privilege and I'm always going to leverage that in any way that I can to protect someone. So, you know, had me and that man maybe been on a crowded street, I would have, push back more and said, well, what's the problem? You know, like if someone wants to wear a halter top, like why is that affecting you? You just need to drive them to where they want to go. But there have been instances where I haven't felt safe. I mean, I didn't feel like I was about to be harmed in that Uber, but I didn't want to, you know, escalate anything with someone who so readily was able to just share his homophobia with me. And so I guess what I'm actually getting to is like, especially if you are like a straight white man, use the platform and privilege you have to correct people. And I imagine those are the same people who are spending time with marginalized communities. Listen to them, hear their stories, hear the way these things impact them and speak up. But generally, I just I don't know if you are not going to be harmed. I do feel like there's a bit of an obligation there to speak up. I don't think you have an obligation to try to change people's minds, though.
0: I think you make a great point about safety. It's not always the best idea to speak up depending on the circumstance. But again, if you're in an environment that is less dangerous where you might have some more privileges, I do think we're obligated to say something. You know, this is a conversation that comes up like every Thanksgiving or whatever or around the holidays when people are going back to spend time with their families. And it's like, so how obligated are you to speak up mm. when one of your uncles or one of your aunts says something homophobic or racist or transphobic or whatever? Do you just let it slide or do you speak up and you make it An awkward thanksgiving for everybody i lean towards the latter but i think that there's caveats too like i think it depends like for instance if it's your dad your 60 year old dad then yeah you should say something because your dad still is a citizen and exists in the world if it's like your 96 year old grandma yeah let ethel be
3: racist (laughs) i agree
0: let her spend her last breaths in the comfort the sweet comfort of racism yeah <laughs> you know what i mean Just let her you don't have to challenge her right but someone who is less than 96 years old <laughs> who was saying this shit you, you should probably say something
3: yeah because they're still out there like you know i think about you know my father me and my sisters are sometimes like hey you can't say that you can't say that and I think at first he thought we were just being extra sensitive. And now he's like, "Okay, this is something they care about. They don't want me saying these kinds of things. But my grandmother, who I love, she is in her 80s. She has dementia. And like, I mean, she's talking about herself. She's like, my hair is so nappy today. And she just like is going in on the hair on top of her head because she was still getting relaxed and it was falling out. And we were like, you can't get relaxes anymore. And she's just like, I don't like it. And why is her hair like that? Just all this stuff. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to let her live her life. Her cognitive ability is declining. I mean, she doesn't even remember what we say 10 minutes after we say it. So like, why am I spending all my energy on that? But I love her.
0: And I guess to get back to the question, this person that is asking for advice, what can they do to feel less anxious, less awkward in these environments? I feel like the best answer if you're able to change environments and change environments, because again, like, why are you in these spaces Yeah, with conservatives, with independents or whatever? Where you are constantly being asked about politics. Like, what is this particular dynamic where this is coming up over and over again? And can you remove yourself? Can you do that?
3: Yeah. Someone said this to me. We're not friends anymore. But I was telling her some stuff some people had said about her. And she was like, why do they feel so comfortable talking to you about it? And This is kind of my question here. Like, why do these people feel so comfortable continuing to bring this stuff up around you? Have you created and now I sound like I'm blaming her. But, you know, what have you maybe contributed to this? And if it's nothing at all that you can't change, just get out of there. Like, you do not have to subject yourself to these things. And when that person asked me that, we stopped being friends because I had been a great friend to her and pushed back on these people. But she still was questioning my friendship. So I was like, okay. Well, we're not going to be friends anymore. And so we have to make these choices for ourselves to be comfortable because it's not on other people to make us comfortable. We're in control of that. And those people are going to keep asking you those questions. So just don't let them.
0: I mean, what did Drake say? You know, I've been losing friends and finding peace because honestly, that feels like a fair trade to me.
3: I mean, I feel bad. I don't know what song that's from, but that is very thoughtful.
0: Fair trade. It's like, ah, man. I don't know which type of points that I just lost by by being able to recall that song so quickly. It was not his most recent album, but the album before that.
3: Comeback season was like one of my favorite mixtapes, and then slowly I just kind of got off the uh, the Drake train.
0: This was a song that was featuring Travis Scott, and it was one of the best songs on that album. Like I, I treat Drake albums like I treat like buffets, you know, brunch buffet. It's like you know what? I don't know if I want the roast beef. I don't know if I want that fruit. That fruit looks like it's been sitting out for a couple weeks. But you know what? I'll fuck with this crab cake. These eggs aren't really hitting, but maybe the omelet might be.
3: That's made of eggs.
0: And the thing is, <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing about Drake, and am bringing him up, you know, in this context, is that he is someone who has managed to be apolitical.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I can't really think of any other star entertainer. Yeah. Or athlete who's been a thing for like the last 15 or 20 years who we have had no sort of expectation of what they believe politically.
3: Yeah, no, that is true. And I've never even once thought what Drake thought politically.
0: No, and I don't give a shit either. I don't care. So this person should remove themselves. If they're able to remove themselves from the environment, should go ahead and do that. If they are not able to remove themselves, if they maybe live in the same space with these people, maybe in a subdivision, or they have to work with people like this, yeah. you just maybe lean into that making them uncomfortable.
3: Yeah. I mean, it, it goes so far because while I do think it's great for you to tell people, hey, I don't want to talk about this, that normally will just incite people more to keep at the conversation. But you make them feel uncomfortable, they're going to run away from it. I mean, people always do. I even
0: think that saying, hey, I don't want to talk about this with you is something that makes people uncomfortable too.
3: And add the with you at the end because that's the part. <laughs>
0: I'm not comfortable with this with you.
3: Yeah. And what do you say to that? You just stop.
0: Shaniqua, thank you so much for stopping through.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for coming. It's good to see you again. You too. Where can people find you or looking for your work, looking for you? Do you want to be found? Because some people, when I ask them that question, they're like, I don't want no one to come looking for me. I don't want people to find
3: me. I... I really like writing. I have not written anything in some time. So I have an outdated website, but it does have my writing on there. So maybe if people visited my website, I would write more. But it's com, and it has all my socials and stuff, but I should write more. So this will be my prompt too. Okay.
0: Shaniqua McClendon. Thank you again for coming through.
3: Thanks for having me. All
0: right. Again, just wanted to thank Joel Anderson, Shaniqua McClendon for coming through today. Great conversation, great guests, great topics. Also, thank you all for coming through. Again, it could have been anywhere else in the world, but you chose to be here with us again this week. So thank you. And again, Stuck with Damon Young is available wherever you can get your podcast. But if you are on the Spotify app, please go to the app. There are all types of like really fun, interactive questions and answers and polls. So please just have some fun. Take advantage of that. Also, if you have any questions whatsoever about anything under the sun, hit me up at DeerDaymond at alright you All right, y'all. See you next week. Stuck with Damon Young is hosted by me, Damon Young. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Kendra James and Madeline Herringer. Our producers are Ryan Wallerson and Morgan Moody. Mixing and Mastering by Sarah gibbel and the folks at Chapter 4. Theme music and score by Taka Yasuzawa. And special thanks to Charlotte Landis. And from Spotify, our executive producers are Lauren Silverman, Neil Drumming, and Matt Schultz. Special thanks to Leslie Guam and Crystal Hall-Stressler.